Welcome to the Heart of Healing, the pandemic episodes. I am your host, Tom Fold. In these episodes, we'll meet loving, talented people who, while coping with their own pandemic stress, are offering others understanding, compassion, love, and ways to relax and heal even under the weight of current conditions. Listen with an open heart to those who in this time of crisis are offering their hearts and talents to all of us. And today we're happy to have as our guest, Jason Soros. And Jason works at the Anti-Defamation League. Welcome, Jason. I'm really happy to be here. And I guess the first thing I would ask is, well, there are two parts of this question, which is, what do you do at the Anti-Defamation League? And how did you get to be working at the Anti-Defamation League? I am ADL's uh, National Director of Education Programs. So there's a large team of education colleagues that I work with across the country. There are 25 offices across the country. And I work closely with them to develop, implement programs around bias, around the schools, around bullying and cyberbullying prevention. Um, we, we do it for any audience that will have us. And how I got there, I was an actor for a long time actor, singer, dancer, and I, to help me pay my bills, because even though I, I was, I made money being an actor, it wasn't quite enough. I took- and That's a, often true of most actors, many actors. <laughs> exactly. Anyone who's listening that's an actor can, can attest to that. Um, but I became a facilitator, which ADL uses to go out into the schools, into the programs. And it was, a, it was a perfect fit for my acting schedule because it was freelance. But once I started doing it, I just uh, knew it was something that I had to do more of. And I had a lot of ideas of programs and a position opened up 11 years ago. I applied for it. I got it. I never thought I would have a nine to five job. And I've been at ADL for 11 years, loving, loving the work. And that's a nine to five, but it's not, an, it's not acting, although you do get to present, I take it. Well, that's the thing. So the facilitating part gives me a little bit. I've done keynotes across the country. And so I have, I still have the opportunity to, um, to, well, the thing about acting that I liked was the storytelling. So in many ways, I'm still a storyteller and I try and help other people create their own stories. Wonderful. So the wonderful. element that I loved about acting well, also, what I understand from other people, including my wife, who's, who was an actress when I met her, is you spend most of your time trying to get a job. Eventually, maybe if you're lucky, you get a job. And if you're very, very lucky, you get a job to put, act in something that says something important. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I ever got to that last one. Well, but here you are today right. saying something important every time you act or present. That's very true. I really appreciate you making that connection for me. Now I love my job even more. Uh, it's, a, it's a deeper meaning, I, I believe. Although I love acting and I love people yeah. you know, going to see shows and so forth. Yeah, but, definitely. Well, in doing these performances or, or presentations, you must have been affected by the pandemic, uh, specifically as to how to go out and do these things. What, how is that working out? Well, there's no more going out and doing them. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> it's sitting in my home and having, you know, 30 people on a screen and leading them through discussion. And 
So we've adapted our work that we used to do in person to, um, we use Zoom and just adapted it so people can still have the impact and, and the, have the opportunity to reflect. It's just in a different environment now. And who are you presenting to in these, these days? Literally any audience. We, any audience. Well, let's say in the last week or so, have you had any presentations? Um, yeah, I've, I did uh, one. I was a co-facilitator for, um, uh, it was actually people could pay to the program. So we had everybody. We had educators. We had a CEO of a, a corporation. And so that was a mixed group. I do a lot of pre-K through 12 work. So I work with students directly and I also work with educators um, and yeah, but do a lot of community stuff and workplace. I would say working with the, and in organizations and for-profit companies. Well, in this presentation, more recent presentation, are the presentations always the same? I mean, the same subject, the same idea you're trying to get across or are they different? They're always the same theme. ADL's an expert at anti-bias education. So right. we found everything in anti-bias. We talk about all of the isms, racism, um, you know, religious bigotry, uh, heterosexism, uh, sexism. We'll, we'll talk about all of those, but all through the lens of anti-bias. And we look first at personal identity and then we understand culture and differences. And then we go to the examining bias Piece. So we look at where bias shows up in our personal lives and also in our interactions and also in the systems and the institutions in which we live. And then we focus on the how to challenge it. What actions can we take? So that's kind of the way we try to frame every program that we do. Right. It seems to me like a, a gigantic job to overcome the bias that's been existing for hundreds of years. It's Well, the thing about bias is it's biological in a way. I heard this, I went to a program once and this brain scientist said that in our evolution, we, we moved to agriculture and we moved away from being the prey. Um, right. And, but when we were the prey, we needed to make split second decisions. And that's where the bias, like the judgments come in. But once we moved to agriculture and we formed societies and communities and we started supporting each other, our brains didn't move, didn't um, evolve as quickly as our society did. So we still have those judgments. We still have that thing. So in what I always say to people is this isn't about not having bias. This is about recognizing bias. This is about making different decisions because now you understand what your biases are. So I always, I admit, I still have so many of the biases that I had before I started doing this work, except now I have a louder voice that goes, Jason, that's ridiculous. That per, you know, it challenges my bias and then I'm able to interact differently with maybe that person that I had a bias against. So yeah. it's really about um, making visible the invisible. Right. Right. We don't talk about these biases, but everybody has them. And how do you find response? Like when you say a CEO, yeah. how does a corporate CEO, <coughs> excuse me, um, respond to this idea? I think the way that we enter the conversation 
it's hard not to buy into it <laughs> because when when you really get down to it and we we always create atmosphere where we want people to feel um well, we say the space is safe enough. It's not about comfort, but right. we want people to feel comfortable enough to share openly. Um, but we really do a great job of getting, all, once we do the first activity, which is more of like getting to know you and we do that, what people hate <laughs> icebreakers, but they work. Right. I usually find after the first hour, not even during that first hour, everyone's ready. And all of a sudden the hierarchies kind of go away. You know, CEOs become a human being that have their own biases and they're having their own conversations. Just a person. How, yeah. would, how would I or anyone else who's an individual recognize my bias? How, what do you offer to help, help me recognize where I am biased? You know, the activity that really got me to see my biases was um, we do something where we pair people up and we, we ask them to share for one minute um, what we call the earliest messages. And we'll start with something like, tell, tell your partner in one minute your earliest message, positive, negative, or neutral of someone of a different religion than you. And if you don't have a religion, then, then that's valid too. Just someone of a different religion. What was the neg what was the message you received, positive, negative, or neutral? And people start going, oh, like when I did that, um, and we were asked to talk about racism. And in a minute, my earliest message was the first time I remembered my mom locking the car door when we came to a stoplight in a neighborhood where there were, when I looked out, there were only black people on the street. So the message I received was that black people were dangerous. Right. And that's so I hear what you're saying. Those messages, early messages. I will tell you one of mine. Okay. And that is when I was about, I would say six or seven, maybe. Uh, we were down in Mississippi uh, following my father who was in the military. And we we're on a bus. And I got up to give my seat to a lady on the bus because that's what I had been told was the right thing to do as a kid. Mm -hmm. The thing that wasn't told is you don't give it to a black lady. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. And right. all of a sudden there was all kinds of tension. I don't even remember what was said or not said, but mm -hmm. I got the clear message that was wrong. Yeah. And that's, that's early. Yeah. And so once you start, you remember one thing, at least for me, and I see this happening, happen all the time with people who go through our programs, once you realize there that message, well, then what are the other messages, and where do you get the messages? It's not just from family; it's from the from the entertainment that we watch, and it's it's everywhere. And once you start seeing that, you start seeing your biases everywhere. And so it, it's really it's being reflective and taking inventory, knowing that everyone has bias, so there's no judgment. But if you're if people are willing to take that inventory, they're going to see it. Yes. Do you think in any way it's somewhat easier for people to face this or deal with this via Zoom than it might have been in person? You know, what? that's a great question. I feel that. Now I want to ask people, I don't know, because I think there are in a in a room in person 
there are there are things, body language, opportunities on breaks to connect. So you can't replicate that in right. Zoom. in Zoom. You can do breakout rooms easily, and people can't hide as easily because their face is right there on the screen. And so it's it's almost even if we're in person, it feels like someone can hide more easily in person than they can in on Zoom. So that's I'm, that's interesting because I guess I was going from the point of view that somehow you could hide less, uh, more more easily on Zoom, and therefore was, you'd have. That was my assumption until you asked me the question and then I thought <laughs> it. But I see what you mean because the face yeah. is right up there and particularly when you do breakout rooms, yeah. you see there are only four people in the room or whatever it might yeah. be. Yeah. And, and after you do these or when you're doing these, what are you offering them or suggesting that people do having come in touch with this bias that they have? If they work in the company, if they work at a school, what are you suggesting they do? Well, we're suggesting that the program that we do isn't the end of the conversation. Whether they have us back or not, they, one of the things I say everywhere I go is that doing anti-bias work, anti-racism work is a journey, it's ongoing, it's a commitment. It is, I'm, I've been doing this now for about 15 years and I'm still discovering my biases, I'm still making mistakes when I'm in conversation with people and um, I think that's, that's the first thing. But like I said, the, our four-part approach to our work always ends with the action pieces. So sometimes if it's a shorter session, we'll just say, what's one thing you're taking away that you'll do differently now? And just like really um, Chip and Dan Heath, who written a lot of great books, one of them is Switch, and they... They say one of the things you have to do to create sustainable change is to shrink the change and like shrink the, like just focus on one thing. So if I'm, I'm with people for 90 minutes, let's say, which I, I hate if it's only 90 minutes because there's only so much you can do, but I'll say, what's one thing and focus on that one thing. I'll sometimes even have people write in, have you ever heard of futureme.org? I've heard of it, yes. Yeah, so I'll have people go on their phone and go to futureme.org and write one thing that they're going to commit to and right. to themselves six months in the future so that they get an email in six months. They, most of them forget about it. Then they get this email saying, this is what I committed to. And then, and it says in there, how did I do? You know, just to get them to think. So Right, right. And do you ever uh, get feedback later? Do you go back to the people you worked with originally? at some point and say, hey, how's it going? Or I see this feedback you just said, but in terms yeah. of your organization, finding out how your work is doing. Yeah, we, we do. In fact, we're in the process of um, doing a few studies of our work that involve a post-evaluation. Um, so we'll do a pre-evaluation and then an immediate post-program evaluation. And then we, we're gonna start doing like three months out, maybe six months out, just to see how much what people learn, because we know they learn stuff, we've, we've evaluated that, but does it impact their behavior and their attitudes in, in the long run? And that's what we're, we're finding out. There's not a lot of research out there about anti-bias education. So right. Yale is looking to be one of the leaders in that. In, in the current times, have you noticed any changes in terms of the workshops you do 
in terms of responses or attitudes since there's been so much happening in the press, so many, you know, Black Lives Matter, so much violence, so much division. What, yeah. have you noticed anything different in the workshops? Yeah, I think we're able to, we always say that we wanna meet people where they are. Well, that line of where people are has moved. Yes. Which is good in, in, a, in a good way. We don't have to, this information isn't as new to as many people as it used to be. And that feels like we're having an impact and it's not obviously not just ADL. There are so many organizations and people doing amazing work, especially around anti-racism. And I, and I want to be clear too, I always say this, ADL does not do anti-racism per se, um, but we can talk about racism in the context of, of bias. But if people are looking for anti-racism specific programming, we, we have partnerships with like NAACP and we'll always encourage people to go to the organizations that have been doing this work for a century around anti-racism. Right. Well, as we brought up the subject, I met you at something that I would say is about anti-racism, CWC. Yeah. Can you tell us more about what that is? Yeah, so CWC stands for Constructive White Conversations. It's a gathering space for white people who um, want to unpack their, what, their racism, want to understand their, how their identity as a white person is contributes to white supremacy and the systems and the institutions and how we benefit. And I always use it too as an opportunity um, to kind of have my, what Robin D'Angelo calls white fragility moments, do it with other white people so that right. burdening black indigenous or people of color. Um, I've been doing it for about five years, but it started with Dan Zanes. He's a musician, uh, does, um, he does, he does children's music. Yeah. But he, so he started it in his home about eight years ago. I went to his home, I guess it was like six years ago and I really liked it. And it was different then. we've made a lot of changes, but there are four of us who are the organizers and we've been organizing together for five years, making changes to CWC. And I will say since George Floyd was murdered in, uh, at the end of May, that the, we've actually increased to seven different gatherings a month. Um, and we have, a, we have a great turnout every month in these seven groups. So it's been quite a journey and, I, and it's only growing, um, which is great. Well, that is, that is good. And also uh, my experience of it, and I'm at, I know you planned it this way, is that it's a safe space. It's a place where you're not gonna get embarrassed or I will say attacked or unattacked or embarrassed by your own prejudice that happens to be there because you suddenly wake up to it and go, oh, I, me, oh, it's not just them, it's me. But how did you guys base this? And how did you come to create such a space that is so safe? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I hesitate using the word safe because I think one of the criticisms of any white anti-racist space um, that's in, exclusive to white people is that it's a space to coddle white people. And at the same time, Dan wanted to create a space 
as an easy entry point for white people who would never have these conversations. And, um, you know, the experience, I'll, I'll talk about my experience. I've done the People's Institute training, the Undoing Racism workshop, which actually I got so much out of. I've um, gone to Surge a couple of times. There are so many great anti-racist spaces for white people, but also in, um, for cross-racial um, organizing. But sometimes for me personally, it, it has felt like a, like there's a lot of what they call virtue signaling. Like I know more than you do. I'm more quote unquote woke than you are. And it just feels <laughs> a little like one up, you know, just I'm, I, I know more than you do, which what Dan wanted to create, what he always says is he, he just wanted to get rid of that feeling and just have a space where people can start exploring. And what we have found is it's a great space for people who are entering the conversation, but it's also a space where people who have been doing this for a long time, like me or Dan, go and keep up the practice and keep up the humility and because it's really easy to fall back into white supremacy. That's what right. I find anyway, so. And do you find going as often as you do that you keep learning more things each time you go? Every single time. And I will be honest, I'll, sometimes, um, you know, cause I work full time and uh, before I go to a gathering, I'll be like, do I really need to go to this one? And at the end I'm thinking, glad I came because I realized a new thing about me or I heard something someone else said and it's, I have yet, and I'm not just saying this, um, it is true to say that I've never walked away from a gathering of CWC without learning something new. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. Well, it is very powerful and very, I, so I find it powerful and also safe. When, when I say safe, just to give you a, feedback is that I came into awareness about some of my own, you know, prejudice by being there, you know, even mm -hmm. though I would have gathered for myself that I wasn't very prejudiced until I went there and discovered I was. Yeah. But if I had been in a space where I did not feel safe, I never would have mentioned it. I mean, that's, so this is the thing that I, I don't say a lot, but I've been thinking a lot about, and I'm curious, your listeners, some of them may be like, no, that's the problem. But I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, to me, the need for safety to have, to be able to talk about difficult, a difficult topic like white supremacy and racism, difficult because it's admitting, I'll speak for myself, I'm admitting that my whiteness and my existence is why racism exists. You know, like I'm, I'm part of a system. I'm not outside of the system. Let me help the IPOC. I'm, I am the system as a white person. So I need a space where I can unpack that without feeling judged. And, but, and this, is, this is where I think the responsibility is on us as white people. I love hearing that you, you found it safe enough to start exploring it. That's the whole goal. But then we want white people to move to getting rid of the idea that having bias or being racist because we grew up in the US is bad. You know, it's like this good bad dynamic is what, why white people 
are afraid. I, I'm saying this from, I just did a focus group for a big consulting firm with just white men because they scored really low on the survey of feeling safe sharing their opinions. Right. The, the company wanted to know why. Why do white men, why are white men afraid to share opinions? Well, their answer was because they didn't want to get fired, but the, the, the main one was because they didn't want to be perceived as a racist. And that to them was like the worst thing that could happen to them. And, and people can criticize that as like, it's not as bad as like the murders that happen of black bodies and it's, and it's not to compare it, but it is a real quote unquote fear um, that exists. And so we hope CWC gets people to break away from that idea that this is bad, I'm, I'm bad. Well, that's, yeah, I think that we work towards, you're working towards and I'm trying to open towards, this is just is, not, just, not, not, not that I've done something wrong. I mean, first of all, if I was given this information in the, in the womb and on the way and from there, I yeah. didn't do it per se, but yeah. I, if I have it, what can I do about that? And that's part of what, but I have to, I have to get rid of the denial the denial that I do not have racism. I'm not the guy that killed somebody that I cannot say, but I have to also agree with all the privileges I've had because of this color of my skin over the years. Yeah, and, uh, and all of the murders of black people stopped, there would still be racism. Right. Because of the systems and the institutions. And so that's why it's not enough. And I, I, you, you get this. That's why it's not enough to think that white supremacy is KKK white hoods and like white supremacist behavior, the, the torch, the tiki torches in Charlottesville. That's not what we're talking. When we say, I always say lowercase w, lowercase s, white supremacy. Right. right. It's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. So. Yeah, and you, and you, I didn't know growing up, like in college. It didn't occur to me that there was anything strange about the fact that there were no people of color in my in my college in terms of teachers or in terms of students. Never occurred to me. Yeah. And that, that's why all of these things take time to understand that this is going on all over. And while I didn't quote do anything to make that happen, I also didn't think about it at all. Yeah, what's interesting, I'll just share one quick thing that I've been thinking about a lot is when I so you've listened, I think I have a podcast that I did this summer with a friend and it's about cross, having authentic cross-racial friendship. And at the end of that, when I listen to the episodes now, there are so many things that make me cringe. And what I realized, I'm trying to look at the, on the positive side and think everything I do, if everything I look back on in a year, I cringe, that means I'm doing the work. Right. You're being honest. Yeah, this this conversation, hopefully I will cringe because yes. I learned something. Oh, you know what I mean by that. Exactly. And, and I'm hoping also by doing this that we get people interested in finding out more about it. And before yeah. we end today, I'm going to ask you for some information about that. Yeah, sure. But basically, what I'm, you know, originally I was going to ask you more questions about well, how has the pandemic affected it? But actually you're doing the same work. You were doing the work. You're just not doing it in person. That's it. And is there any other thing that the pandemic has done as far as you can see from your view that's changed anything? Or is it the world's pretty much the same, just we're all you know, locked in? I don't think it's the same. I think one of the things going online has done is 
made people, it's easier access to, to CWC, definitely. Um, right. We have people from the UK, we have someone from Liberia who joins us. They would have never been able to do CWC when we were doing it in person. Um, but I think the other thing is in many cases, um, I know that there are so many people struggling and, and working and doing so much, but in what I've heard from a lot of people is there's a lot more time to think. So that thinking bodes very well for reflection and for taking inventory on racism in our lives. And so I, I think that's playing into the, I, I think it was almost a perfect storm of events, um, and the pandemic, I mean, if you can call this, I would have rather have a world without any of it. Right. <laughs> but, you know, you put it all together and I feel a shift. I feel there being more of a critical mass of people. I look at my social media feed this, this summer, all the way through the election, more people were involved than ever before. More people voted. More people voted, more people were involved in conversations like CWC, in reading books and sharing books in a way that a year ago, I would post things on anti-racism and no one responded. Right, right. And this year I found, oh, I don't even need, to, I mean, I still posted things because <laughs> I'm still interested, but my other friends were posting things. My other friends were calling me because they knew I did this work. And so there's just a momentum that didn't exist before. Well, it's interesting. This is what, you're, what I'm hearing you say, and I think I understand it and believe it. This is like a Petri dish. We have time to you know, develop things, introspection. And yeah. uh, while we don't want to have to have a pandemic to do that, yeah. maybe that's what the, if there's a purpose to the pandemic, maybe that's it. Yeah. Well, before I forget, because we are coming towards the end of our time, if people who are listening to this, and I hope there are a lot of them, and I hope they really like this and find it interesting, and they wish to learn more about what you're doing in either of the works that you do or all of the works you do, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? To me personally, you can reach out to my email, which is a weird email. Should I just say it? A weird email. Tell me what the weird email is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spell it for you. Good. N is in Nancy. A, M is in Mary, S is in Sam, two, unams2 at yahoo.com. U-N-A-M-2? Uh, S after the M. Oh, S, and then yeah. two. Yep. At? Yahoo.com. Yahoo. Yeah, so people, if, they, if you're listening and you want to connect with me about anything, just say that you, you heard this podcast and... I'll be sure to respond. But if, if people want to learn more about CWC, we have a website and they can go there. What uh, is the CW? Why don't I put that in there? What's the CWC website? It's um, a constructivewhiteconversations.org. All, all one word. Okay. Dot org. I will write this in here also because there's a piece of description that comes with this. Excellent. But that's really wonderful. I really yeah. appreciate all that you have brought to my life in making that a difference and that you're doing uh, all over. That's really wonderful. I thank you. I'm, I, it's been a pleasure meeting you and CWC and really 
Um, just, I love that you've asked me to be a part of this conversation too. I, I love, I don't know if you could tell, I love talking about what I do. I do notice that. I, I noticed that and didn't have any worry about inviting you to talk about it because I thought you'd be happy to do so. So yeah, so thank you for the invitation. All right, well, Jason, thank you so much for being a guest on this show on the Heart of Healing, the pandemic episodes. And thank our audience for listening. And I hope you have a great week. Take good care.